Hello, welcome to CareerCast 2020, brought to you by the Career Development Committee at EAST. Uh, I'm Lazlo Karai, I'm a trauma surgeon here at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. And today I'm sitting down with Scott Sherry, uh, PAC, FCCM, and he's the lead advanced practice provider for trauma emergency general surgery at, and assistant professor at Oregon Health and Science University. And today we're gonna talk about uh, his career as an advanced practice pr provider and then we're going to go into um, career advancement um, in an academic setting. But um, without further ado, Scott, welcome to the CareerCast. Thank you very much, Dr. Cry. Pleasure to be here. Um, and so maybe to start things off, uh, what was your background and what were your influences uh, even prior to attending uh, PA school? Before going into PA school, uh, I was a volunteer fireman, EMT. And uh, I went to University of Maryland, Baltimore County and obtained my paramedic degree. Upon graduation, I had the opportunity to work with the University of Maryland Medical System and shock trauma as a critical care paramedic. Uh, before moving to Newcastle County Emergency Medical, Ser Medical Services in Delaware and functioned as a 911 paramedic for an additional four years. While I was working with Newcastle County EMS, I realized that I, while I enjoyed the pre-hospital environment, I longed for additional training and opportunities for growth. And I looked to different professions to expand on my abilities as a paramedic and looking to the future, to my personal future at that time. And, uh, the, and this was, uh, not to date us, but this was about 20 years ago. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, in the in the past 20 years, def I've definitely seen uh, almost an explosion of roles for advanced uh, practice providers and then an increasing popularity of that pathway. And so um, back when you were applying to um, PA school, was there uh, certain influences that, that made you chose that route versus, say, the other advanced practice provider routes or medical school for that matter? Oh, definitely. A couple of them were, as I was going through college, I had an opportunity to work as an emergency department tech. So I worked very closely with a lot of physician assistants uh, in the emergency department, and I was able to see what they could do, what they did do, and how they interacted with their physician colleagues. So that was a very, very critical juncture in my early professional career. Ironically, also, one of my medical directors when I was a paramedic actually started out as a PA before he went back to school to become a physician. And so when I talked to him, he very was was very much important in my early career decision and shaped the direction where I wanted to be at that time. But I did look at the other uh, advanced practice provider routes. I looked at nursing school. I looked at potentially at CRNA school and I even looked at uh, medical school. And at that time in my personal and professional career, going the physician assistant route was the most practical and pragmatic and uh, you know, route that I wanted to take that would balance a good career opportunity for me and where I wanted to be at that point in my life. So uh, after PA school though, you had several you know, areas of interest, obviously with your, your pre-hospital provider background uh, that led to some of, some of your decisions, uh, but what other, um, what other clinical pathways did you explore other than trauma care? I looked at uh, criti primary, primarily critical care. Uh, the PA school that I attended 
had a lot of opportunities. And one of the big opportunities that we had was going directly into critical care rotations. We had emergency medicine. I really leaned toward that initially heavy on in my career before I understood that physician assistants could provide good trauma care as well. Uh, definitely was a new avenue uh, that, uh, that was evolving uh, through my PA school. Uh, fortunately, I graduated at a point in, uh, uh, in history where the residency requirements for the 80-hour work week were changing, and the changes in those residency requirements really offered, opened an opportunity for me to get into an organization uh, towards critical, um, towards trauma care. All right. And then um, when I uh, actually met you, uh, you were at a, a non-academic trauma center, and this was in the early 2000s. And so you were there for quite a bit doing trauma and critical care, and then you moved to an academic trauma center. And so maybe you can talk about what the similarities there were and what the differences were within the two, uh, between functioning as an APP at the two different centers. Well, overall, the, the similarities between the two centers were that both of them really strived towards you know, systematic trauma care. And so really focusing on the whole of the patient based on the ACS guidelines and really developing a true trauma system from the start to the end of their particular hospitalization or the course of their treatment. I think that was one of the big similarities. Again, as you, as you alluded to, you and I got to work together, so I still had an opportunity to work with residents, which I was always you know, saw as a, a very big plus because the residents brought different perspectives, different views, different treatment modalities and education that was always fresh, always new, always learning. And I really like that opportunity that, uh, you know, a, a true academic center has at their core. So it was something where it's ingrained in the learning, it's ingrained in to continue to look at evidence-based medicine. And, you know, this is nothing against any of the, uh, the non-academic centers, but it's just a different culture and feeling within that organization um, versus versus a non-academic center. Uh, we did do education at the at uh, at the other center. We did um, journal clubs. We did uh, trauma conferences, and there was definitely a strive towards you know making sure that we were practicing uh, good evidence-based medicine. But there's a different definitely a different feel when you interacted with residents and uh, really being a part of a, a true academic center. And then uh, what about the interaction between uh, physicians and advanced practice providers um, over your career, over, over the past 15 or 20 years? Uh, have you noticed a change there? Definitely, I think there's been a huge evolution. And I think that you, know, you and I have had these discussions for a number of years, is when we were both uh, starting out, it was a very new and different, different environment having advanced practice providers basically coming in and filling a role that was usually left to residents to do. And I think that as we've grown up together and as both of our professions have expanded and there's been more integral uh, relationships built within both advanced practice provider professions uh, from an interdisciplinary education format, we understand each other better. We know that we're there to both help the patient. We're not there as competition. And even, even over the years, we've seen a transition where advanced practice providers through their being there for years really are filling a role as a trainer and an educator to some of the newer residents and bringing them along and forward. And I think those have been some of the biggest growths as we've really grown together over the past near 20 years. Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely the case between 
um, advanced practice providers and residents, um, uh, where earlier on I almost noticed some sort of uh, competition for cases and patients. And I feel like that's largely gone away as the centers um, have matured. Um, and uh, do you think there's any role for some sort of additional, even additional certifications? Because clearly an advanced practice provider that's been working in an ICU for 15 or 20 years um, has this experience and is it in fact a teacher of even residents and I'd say, uh, I'd say fellows as well. Um, and I'd say even attending physicians uh, frequently. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, do you think there's a, a certification is necessary to kind of recognize that and their advancement or do you think we're in an okay position right now in terms of how we've matured with advanced practice providers? That's always a good question. I think that's definitely a controversy within, you know, both uh, advanced practice providers, both nurse practitioners and physician assistants is, you know, we, we are trained slightly different. And uh, what does this, the certification bring? And one of the things is um, if you're, if you're being certified as a training into it, that as residents uh, go into fellowships and they become board certified, is that what we're striving for? Is there more of a validity of somebody who is, has experience and has now, you know, gets an additional designation because of his or her experience? I know there's been a lot of controversy and a lot of discussions that I've heard over the past 15 or 20 years about this, this, those additional qualifications and what it would mean for advanced practice providers and for the roles that they, they have. Um, and maybe you can speak a little bit about that in terms of your professional development over the um, over your career, um, where I think uh, before there was kind of some courses that you would attend, uh, but has professional development changed for the advanced practice provider? Definitely. I think early on when I was uh, starting out, there were very few uh, what I would define as uh, you know analogous to uh, the physician is uh, residency type programs. Uh, there's more postgraduate training programs for advanced practice providers. I think one of the other things that we have understood and we've grown over the past 20 years is the need for onboarding and really focusing on that transition year from when you graduate as an advanced practice provider to really your clinical practice, almost like a mini residency, uh, really trying to get people onboarded well, effectively, so not only do they stay into their profession, but they also are able to find where they're going to meet their milestones, where their areas of deficiency are, and really focusing on their improvement. And I think that's been one of the most tremendous things that I've seen uh, become a, more of a reality for people is that really having good onboarding programs for advanced practice providers to be successful. Yeah, and I think uh, to go back to that point about the residents, I think one of the big missteps um, earlier on in the process were centers that just hired um, advanced practice providers as replacement residents. Uh, and with that became a lack of individual development. Um, and uh, I think with, with what we're doing today, I think um, you know, individualized development is crucial, uh, not for just improving um, professionally, but improving care. Um, you went on, you, speaking of that though, you went on to pursue academic rank at our institution and uh, that was relatively rare um, at the time. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you went about that and any barriers that you faced. Yeah. So one of my biggest focus at that time was really within the critical care realm. And uh, I pursued my uh, FCCM, 
which is Fellowship of Critical Care Medicine. And uh, I attained I attained that does that uh, that uh, that honor, and I really looked at that as a, a stepping stone for me, as that I was able to show and demonstrate my ability as a clinician, as a as an individual who did academic work, research, development, and I looked at it and looked at the standards within our organization, and I. Basically, as I looked at both of those those um, uh, those systems and and promote a promotion, I saw that you know I met all the criteria to to get academically promoted to assistant professor uh, based on very similar uh, accomplishments and achievements outside of my normal work, and so I approached our our division director. Uh, Dr. Schreiber, and uh, you know, I sat down with him, and he's been a very good mentor to me over the years. And I said, I, I would like to try to get academic rank. And do you see any barriers? And he was very supportive of it, as he has always been through my personal career, and encouraged me to to take that leap. And uh, was was able to help out, be a good advocate. I don't think that's always the case in every division to have those good advocates and people that will help you. Uh, so I was very, very fortunate to have somebody who who could uh, speak up for me and also to uh, help uh, be a good proponent uh, within the system. But aside from getting all of my credentials together, uh, demonstrating all the academic accomplishments and uh, research that I helped do and publications uh, that I that I assisted with, um, for for me it was a it was it was very very easy once I had the support of my my mentors. So it sounds like there's maybe some say inertia to the problem initially in terms of a lack of um, <laughs> lack of advanced practice providers taking that route. But once you kind of demonstrate that you uh, meet all the objective criteria, um, it should be pretty straightforward. Yes, I think that you know there, are, depending on the academic center, I think that there may be individual challenges within those. But I think the most important thing is for the provider to really look at his or her portfolio see what they have accomplished also look at the look at what the objectives are for each of those academic rank really build up a good strong portfolio and academic um, center or um, and to be able to get those those uh, those accomplishments well listed and demonstrated and then approaching uh, your your uh, your hierarchy to be able to be put on the table for an academic promotion all I right. definitely and think that it's a, a thing that you have to self-strive for, and I think that it is something that I don't think that if you are, are in an academic center, you should wait for somebody to come to you whether or not you deserve. You really have to take the, the onerous on yourself and really make yourself look good and really try to show them that you deserve that rank. And I think that's one of the biggest factors that uh, people are people are humble. They they. They want to be able to uh, be recognized, but it's hard to self-recognize. Great. Uh, that's really good advice. Um, the Speaking of your career roles, you recently transitioned from um, your, your, nearly your entire advanced practice provider career in the ICU to one as a, as a lead in emergency general surgery care. Um, how did that transition go? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, what's changed in your day-to-day day-to-day um, -day life? 
Sure. About four years ago, uh, I transitioned out of the intensive care unit to take an opportunity within the same division that I work in uh, under their uh, emergency general surgery or acute care surgery section. I thought this was a great opportunity for me for some professional growth. Uh, the EGS section was developing and uh, really had a good foothold within the organization. And there was a lot of opportunities for developing additional program development, as well as improving on guidelines and performance within a, a section. And I really thought that this was a good opportunity for me to really show that I could manage program development, really be a leader within emergency general surgery services, and really get an opportunity to collaborate with a lot of different people outside of trauma and outside of the critical care environment. And it's been, it's been a huge experience for me and a great experience to development and partner with a lot of different groups that I would never think to partner with before. Yeah, and just to note, as you, uh, as you approach the age of 50, four years becomes relatively recently. Uh, <laughs> there's a, and so regarding EGS care, um, maybe can you think about some of the changes necessary to really advance the, the field of EGS? There's some parallels to trauma, uh, certainly, and but I always view trauma as maybe the more established field uh, in a lot of areas. But what do what do you think some of uh, what are some of the things we need to do uh, to progress EGS? No, and that was one of the big things when I first came in, knowing my trauma background. It was very easy to just sort of equate the two. EGS was just like a young trauma system, you know, 30, 40 years ago, just starting out, just really growing, right for opportunity for development, right for opportunity for setting guidelines, protocols, and pathways, and really establishing those uh, within organization. And uh, I think that's one of the big things within growth uh, for acute care surgery. Uh, one of the things that we even notified or no, noticed early on was the fact that lacking a registry type system that trauma does to really better understand what our patients are, what are our population, what challenges that we face going forward in terms of um, opportunities for improvement in morbidity and mortality, where are our biggest challenges within uh, the systems to develop better pathways and progression of patient care throughout their systems. And um, really trying to challenge ourselves to to think outside of our conventional processes. Yeah, and you've uh, you've been involved in um, obviously a lot of changes to how we take care of EGS patients um, and specifically streamlining protocols. One that comes to mind is that you uh, basically recently developed the protocol on how we take care of some of the complex quaternary referrals on patients with pelvic osteomyelitis and, um, you know, in stage four ulcers. And so what, what do we, can you describe what, what we uh, do for those patients now and, and what went into the buy-in necessary for that protocol? Sure. Uh, to give you some background, as I started this, this position, I noticed that a lot of uh, these patients didn't really have a good set plan. Uh, we were really disorganized in how we organized the care for them then there was a lot of coordination of care that really needed to be done and it was it was done in in a very thoughtful manner but in somewhat a haphazard manner and how we organized and took care of them and i looked at this over the over the first year or so that i was involved in it and really had some good discussions with uh, my director arvin g and he challenged me to reach out to different uh, 
providers to be able to start opening the lines of dialogue. So we engage the plastic surgery service, our orthopedic colleagues, because many of our patients who come in with a lot of pre-existing medical conditions that our acute care surgery was not equipped with dealing with heart failure or a lot of uh, potentially addiction issues or potentially uh, long-term infections. Uh, so we got the hospital service involved as well as infectious disease. And we really built up a broad coalition of providers to be able to really think about how our pathway should be from accepting patients and transfer, what services we could definitely provide, how we're gonna provide it in a more organized care, who's going to do what aspects of that care and organize, and also the follow-up to make sure that the patients are also getting ongoing follow-up care once they leave the hospital. So it was really a, a huge endeavor for us to be able to really build a good organized manner to, to be thoughtful about using our resources as a quaternary institution. Great. Yeah, no, and I've, I've noticed the difference in terms of taking transfer of patients. It seems like we already are processing in place and it just, it's a, it's a very streamlined process now. So thank you for developing that. Oh, it was, it was a, it was a great, great opportunity for me to, to really, again, to go outside of my, my normal day-to-day -day work and really try to improve the process and organize care. The um, one, uh, one difficult issue this year has been difficult, but even this past uh, month, um, I've noticed um, I've been trying to build my awareness of um, disparities and you know racism inherent in our systems. And so, a question for you as a you know a leader in the in the field is, um, what do you think some of the barriers we are, and maybe some of the mitigating factors we can do to um, encourage underrepresented minority recruitment and advancement in this field. I think you know one of the one of the things I take away with this past month and a lot of personal reflection is really thinking about how I engage with other people and looking at those um, you know looking within and really reflecting on those barriers that uh, some of these underrepresented groups have and and know that they are real and that. We need to be reaching out to, uh, you know, students. We need to be reaching out even at the high school level about opportunities within our, our professions and really let them let people know that this is a, a, a field that they are welcome to, wanted, and how we can really coach them along within their within and give them opportunities to be coached by by individuals. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I value growing up and being associated with the pre-hospital environment was I had access to people that could show me that this was a viable career opportunity for me. I think reaching out to students, reaching out to the communities, uh, showing them that there are opportunities for them, also trying to figure out how to partner with these institutions uh, to be able to give them opportunities to shadow uh, to be able to interact with people who are in healthcare, uh, to be able to really show them that this is a viable career, this is a viable career opportunity, and this is something where we need them to be able to help us as well as to help their own help their own communities uh, in the future. And I think we go, we have to do this together, and we really have to uh, make these partnerships. 
Yeah, I think the we just talked about changes in EGS care and we talked about registries a little bit, but um, certainly one of the thoughts I had was that uh, almost every study we look at demonstrates healthcare disparities. And so, um, you know, the next going beyond that and, and uh, actually making differences um, in these disparities is going to be a very important challenge um, in the next decade and beyond. I agree. Um, the other thing I was thinking about with this regard, which we talked about too, is that your uh, our academic rank um, discussion is that uh, recruitment is certainly a short-term goal in terms of um, in improving the diversity um, at our institution, but retention, I think, is a, potentially a more challenging issue and more important issue. And so encouraging pathways of promotion is certainly, uh, I think, part of uh, of this discussion in uh, imp improving inclusion um, and improving diversity in our field. I agree. We definitely need to do a better job with mentorship, with really partnering up uh, individuals that can, sh you know, discuss how to grow um, individual coaching. I know I struggle even personally just trying to figure out where my next steps are, so I can't so I know that that is something that we really need to start fostering within our organizations. I think we're doing better. I think we have a long way to go. Okay. And um, and so finally, uh, maybe you can provide some advice to a younger practitioner, I'm not saying anything about your age, uh, starting an advanced practice provider career. I think my my best advice to somebody who's coming into an advanced practice provider career is that I think you need to continually look for opportunities uh, for personal and professional growth. As most things in life, there is nothing that is handed to you. I think you have to look for those opportunities such as mentorship, look for opportunities with education, look for opportunities for being part of research and really doing a lot of the work for yourself. I think one of the biggest adages that I, I don't know where I learned this from, but the just say yes mentality, where if people ask you to do something, you should say yes, so that way it challenges your professional growth, uh, not to abuse, abuse you in a, uh, you know, doing more work than is needed, but you needed to strive and really try to go outside of your normal um, comfort zone and look for those opportunities. Look where the opportunities for research are, look for opportunities where you can develop pathways, protocols, and really start striving and making making yourself available to do better within this this organ your organization. Great. Well, um, thank you so much, Scott Sherry, for joining us today at uh, CareerCast, and um, and uh, uh, please keep us posted on uh, on future developments. Thank you. I really appreciate being here today and thank you for your time. All right. Take care, Scott. Goodbye. Thanks.